It's Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Feb 14 means it's Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. And how could it not be? Love, emotion, connections, kisses, or the very disturbing lack thereof. Look, it's good that we've become sensitive to the fact that maybe not everyone is celebrating in the way we are. But has that sensitivity become the dominant point being made? I search Google News for answers. Search term, Valentine's Day emotions of the 10 most prominent search results. And I have no idea how they're algorithm picks them because one of them was from the student newspaper at Brandeis University, Valentine's Day's importance for the black diaspora. Okay. But of the 10, the ones that were actually relevant had two acknowledgement that Valentine's Day was a happy day. The India Times, happy Valentine's Day wishes. Hug it out, the power of oxytocin on Valentine's Day. But five were fully Valentine's Day. Huge bummer. How to cope when Valentine's Day triggers sadness. Valentine's Day playlists music for the love sick or sick of love. Staying sober on Valentine's Day. Seven ways to survive Valentine's Day when you're single. And I don't think that that survive was hyperbole because it was in psychology today. I then searched on Google Trends. Search term in love. Search term alone. In love today, on this day, it was uh, for the past day, in love relatively was scoring a 10 and alone was scoring a 4. So in love is higher than alone. But there was a huge spike in alone at 3.24 a.m. Didn't understand it. I also searched for the last 90 days in love and alone. And in love does outperform. But there was one alone spike where it greatly overtook in love. And that was on Christmas. Sad. I'll tell you one thing about Valentine's Day that demonstrates that the perception is not matching the reality, all right? What's the colder holiday of the three? Christmas, New Year's, or Valentine's Day? All right, you're clever. You know that because I asked the question, it might be Valentine's Day. But consider the question this way. Which holidays do you associate with being cold, with snow, with a chill, It's definitely Christmas and New Year's before Valentine's Day, yet the average low temperature in New York Central Park on Christmas, average low of 32 degrees. On January 1st, average low of 30 degrees. On this day, February 14th, the average low is 29 degrees. A recent New York Times article on whoever makes the messages on candy hearts made a good point. Call me became fax me, became page me, became email me, became text me. The candy heart has become something of a barometer. It's true. Last year, the hearts reflected our wounded zeitgeist by issuing hearts that said, don't quit, push through, fear less, or maybe fearless, but there was a space in between fear and less, and chin up. Encouraging, sure, but kind of a bummer in that it acknowledges we need all the encouragement. I don't know if we've gone too far to the Valentine's Day as self-care plan side of things. We were certainly in the rainbows and roses all around blinders for quite a while. But I do want to end with a message and a statement about Valentine's Day from that New York Times article, which was excellent. And it really opened my eyes and my heart. Here we go. The candy heart was born during the lozenge craze of the mid-1800s. Think of that when you give your loved one an endearing confection this evening. 
It all harkens back to a simpler time when we didn't fret over being triggered by the love of others, but also consumption ran rampant in the very sort of bistro you're eating in right now. On the show today, Pete Buttigieg assailed for his silence on a train derailment. But first, Keith Humphreys is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University. He served as a drug policy advisor in the Bush and Obama White Houses. And he joins me to talk about the opioid crisis, also homelessness, and whether the legalization of marijuana is good or bad in the fight against fentanyl. Keith Humphreys, up next. Keith Humphreys is a fascinating figure. He's the Esther Ting Memorial Professor at Stanford University. He's also served on presidential commissions, Republican presidents, George W. Bush, Democratic president, President Obama, where he is an expert on subjects such as addiction. Now, if you are one of America's leading experts on addiction and you think a lot about society, the rivulets that this will take you down will inevitably lead to issues like prison, racism, incarceration, drug policy on a federal and state level. And Professor Humphreys does think about all these things, does write about all these things. He's a public intellectual, and he really has his fingers on some of the most important issues in society today. I welcome him to The Gist. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Mike. You know, about A year and a half ago, I thought of fentanyl as, well, you know, all my life we've always had these scares about these next killer drugs. Uh, Isn't fentanyl more or less in that group? Even to this day, you see some alarmism. Like uh, recently, there was a report about policemen handling fentanyl with sets of gloves, but still getting some sort of effect, which seems not to be possible. However, If you look at the statistics, and I know you have, fentanyl does seem to be in a different category, and it does seem to me to deserve the reputation as especially dangerous. What is your take on that? Yeah. So first off, you're right about the, there, there is the uh, sort of panic about if you touch fentanyl, you die. That can't happen. Don't worry about that. Um, but fentanyl is an earthquake in drug markets, um, economically speaking. And that is because if you think about making heroin, what do you have to do to do that? Well, you have to have some land somewhere, usually in a dodgy country, you have to pay off the local warlords, you need peasant labor, then you got to process it, you got to ship it five, 10,000 miles to the markets where you're going to sell it. Fentanyl wipes all that out for traffickers. You can whip it up in a sink. Um, So that makes it extraordinarily cheap to produce and therefore is extraordinarily profitable, probably about a hundredfold as profitable as heroin. So when you think of it that way, it was only a matter of time. We've had fentanyl now for over 50 years that that traffickers realized, you know, the heck with all this other stuff. Let's just uh, put out this um, synthetic opioid, much as meth has risen, also entirely synthetic, free from agriculture. And it it is very, very strong. It's about 50 times as strong as heroin. So you can also produce it in smaller amounts and still make it profitable. But that also means that very slight gradations in the dose uh, give you dramatically different effects, including respiratory suppression, which is what produces overdose deaths. Why would a drug dealer want to kill his clients? Great question. Uh, Well, the most profitable product of the 20th century in the United States was the tobacco cigarette. 
which kills about a third of people smoke. It's like, how can that be possible? You killed all those people. It's a, you just have to kill them slowly enough that you get enough money out of them to make it worth it. So it's, it's certainly the dealer wants to keep all his clients, but if you have a massively addictive drug that keeps bringing in new people and the typical user uses for a number of years, buys from you maybe once or twice a day throughout those years, you're still out ahead financially. And, and that's how it is profitable. That is a very cold hearted viewpoint, but you know, I don't think most people look to the illegal drug industry for moral guidance. Yeah. And he also points out simple, stupid things like how it's improperly mixed can lead to really dangerous batches. And especially when it was first introduced, even the dealers didn't know what they were, pardon the pun, dealing with. Yeah. And that's still probably true. You know, one of the effects of prohibition is the quality of labor you attract is substantially inferior. Um, you know, so there are, contrary to what we see in movies, a lot of people who deal drugs, in fact, most who deal on the street are not that bright, uh, couldn't really do much of anything else um, and not necessarily know how to, you know, whip up a perfect, you know, chemistry uh, uh, informed packet of drugs. So, so you're always going to have that, you know, variation there, even though the people who survive in the drug trade for a very long time at the top tend to be a lot smarter. They're not the ones who are interacting with the user base. According to federal statistics, there were 107,000 drug overdose deaths. I'm going to say the vast majority, about 70,000, were fentanyl overdose deaths. To put this in perspective, this looks like absolutely no other Western European country, though there is a small exception for Scotland. Other people going through the angst and the escapism, and even some of the liberalization of drug laws in the West, or what we used to call the West, with the same inclinations, and even the potential to have the same networks of distribution, are not dying in the numbers that Americans are. Why? Yeah, we'll say I would say not yet, because you could have said um, five years ago, what's different about Americans on the West Coast? They're not dying of fentanyl, but Americans on the East Coast are. And this goes back to this thing that the drugs are traded in markets. Fentanyl was almost entirely confined uh, east of the Mississippi. So we saw tons of deaths in the Appalachians, New England and all that. And there were none out here where I am. And in the last three years, that has changed as it has spread. Um, there is every reason to expect, and I work a lot with colleagues in other countries, that fentanyl will spread to Western Europe. Um, you know, there is, there, there is one, uh, one country that already has complete fentanyl penetration, which is Estonia. Um, but um, you've you got to see that rising because there's heavy opioid use, for example, in places like Britain. Uh, there's certainly heavy opioid use in many a Asian countries. And the, the economic proposition is so appealing, it's going to get there. Again, let's go back to what is another effect of prohibition? Illegal markets innovate, but far more slowly than legal markets. If Amazon sold fentanyl, it would be available to everyone on earth right now, right? You know, but, but markets have poor intelligence. They often have less uh, uh, talent. They can't op operate as uh, overtly. And for all those reasons, they're slower to pick up innovations than legal businesses are. And that's the only reason fentanyl hasn't uh, swept the entire world. So let's talk about legal markets because the rise in fentanyl in America roughly correlates with a decriminalization movement. And I think these are just two independent charts that happened at once. Maybe you have an insight as to that. But is there a way, now that we're here now, that the decriminalization movement, which isn't everywhere, but has certainly taken hold in many progressive places, is interacting and making it harder to do anything about all these deaths from fentanyl. 
So uh, let's define our terms. So decriminalization would mean punishment towards the person who uses drugs. And, and we, you know, I chaired the Stanford Lance Commission. We actually opposed putting anyone in a, in a jail cell for using opioids, for example. And I'm tired of sympathetic that because the risks to death are, are, are just spectacular. That's cruel and unusual punishment. I don't think it's a, so, but what about legalization? There's been moves towards, you know, legalizing meaning production and sale. Uh, and that brings us back to how we got here in the first place, which was, as Sam Cononis no doubt told you, this is still an echo of a legal drug which was the uh, opioid overdose, or opioid prescription boom, which went from about 1995 to 2001, 400% per capita increase. And a huge number of those people who got addicted to perfectly legal uh, marketed drugs given to them by doctors in many cases, like Oxycontin, uh, like hydrocodone, transitioned into illegal markets, into heroin, and now have transitioned into fentanyl. So, so you know, they're, they're, and that was, say, that was all legal. Um, so, I don't think that is the, you know, the fact we decriminalize somewhat on the, the punishment of use. I don't think that actually was the mechanism here. I think this is really something that came out of a, a legal market to begin with. And, and that, by the way, is a caution for people who say, and I hear this so often, you know, if we just legalize fentanyl and let companies sell it, there wouldn't be any overdoses. And just like, right, because nobody ever got addicted or overdosed from Oxycontin. Yeah, it should have never happened. I mean, that's just, that's just really ignoring quite recent history. Is the fact that in my city, in many cities, you could go to a corner store and buy marijuana like you would buy, not milk, but cigarettes, that you could buy marijuana in that way. Is that in any way diminishing our ability to tackle the fentanyl problem? They're both drugs. They're both have aspects of the law. But, and like I said, the rise in one uh, fentanyl coincided with the rise in efforts to think about the decriminalization of marijuana. But right now, today, 2023, or how related are those two phenomena? So, you know, early in uh, the legalization of sort of the corporate marijuana industry, there were billboards all over this country saying, uh, you know, legalizing marijuana will cut opioid overdoses by 10, 25% built on very weak work, uh, which has all been overturned empirically, although some people t- still cite it. So, so let's get that off the table. Does cannabis stop people from having opioid overdoses? No, it does not. Does it increase having the more promotion? It probably does. Now, there was a, there's, a, there's a silly and a not silly version of the gateway theory. You know, the, the silly version of the gateway theory in the 80s was, look, you know, most people who use heroin use cannabis first, therefore cannabis turns you into a heroin user. That's ludicrous. But if you, if you think about it more broadly, any, particularly for young people, using any substance, doesn't have to be cannabis, cannabis, alcohol, tobacco, whatever, um, makes you more likely to try other substances. First off, you might like it and think, I'd like to explore more. Second, your social networks often change, so you're in touch with people who can provide other, other drugs to you. And third, there's probably some uh, neurological effects of sensitization to drug effects. So to the extent we are increasing cannabis use, and we are with legalization, that some of those people will, in fact, be more likely to translate into using opioids. Okay, so even so, then, have you concluded that it wasn't worth it or the benefits of the marijuana decriminalization or legalization um, movement, though they have to be considered, the benefits are not worth whatever add-on effects are they are uh, happen in terms of fentanyl addiction and death? So 
decriminalization of punishment towards users, I think, was worth it. Because what you see, for example, in California, like a 90% increase in arrests and no real increase in cannabis use. So that improves a lot of people's lives, especially young people's lives, and um, to not have to have that fear hanging over them. But legalization of a corporate industry that is very much along the lines of the tobacco industry, and in fact, has investments from the tobacco industry, was a very bad idea. I mean, once you once you tie capitalism to the production of a drug, in, at least in the United States, where we're rotten at uh, regulating corporations, you were inevitably going to have advertising promotion and increased addiction because that's how you make money. So, you know, if a if a, what I would wish could have happened is if a state would have tried a non-commercial distribution model, so we could see if that might work better, like PBS for marijuana. Yeah, yeah, like that. Or, or here, here's something people my age will know. Remember, is state stores. I grew up in West Virginia. You know, you could buy alcohol, but you bought it. The government sold it. It was unglamorized. They didn't advertise. They carted everybody. Believe me, I checked. Um, you know, and and that that model is associated with much less binge drinking, much less drinking by kids, lower drink driving accidents. And when you turn it into every liquor store saying, "Hey, two for one this week. Come on in. This is great." Uh, you know, and they don't card and all that kind of stuff. You start when you let corporate in there, the incentive is always sell more, 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 more. And there is no customer like an addicted customer. That's where it comes from. Yeah. So it seems from your research, you have proved over and over again that the way to combat addiction is to nudge in some way, nudge addicts towards getting treatment. It used to be more than a nudge. It used to be compelling them by force of the state. And now some jurisdictions are experimenting with but like we said, decriminalization in the state of Oregon, which I know you've uh, commented on, their efforts of decriminalization are just essentially legalization of all drugs. They issue a ticket. They do nothing to enforce the ticket. Therefore, addicts are never nudged into treatment. I mean, so are we just fated to just always get this wrong and swing between extremes? I sometimes despair of American politics for that very reason, it, that, that it seems that any kind of interim view, like the one I just tried to express, like, you know, we, we don't have to, you know, destroy the lives of marijuana users with penalties, but it's also not good to have a corporate uh, presence. It, it's very hard to get that across. You have to sort of be for or against. Um, and and, uh, and on, on addiction, I think we've gone back and forth of, you know, we should punish people for addiction versus we should just, they're self-actualizing. Let's just back off and eventually they will, they will, um, decide to change. And the evidence on that is just completely incorrect. I mean, when we, I teach, when I teach the psychiatry residents, you know, teach about the four L's that bring people into addiction treatment, which are liver, lover, livelihood, or the law. The normative person has at least one of those sources pressuring them, sometimes two or three sources, because addiction feels good. I mean, drug use feels good. That's why people do it. So it's not like chronic pain. People in chronic pain will crawl a mile to get treatment because it's a misery 24 hours a day. But, you know, fentanyl is rewarding. So people have ambivalence about giving it up. Understandably, that's the nature of the condition. And so usually it's some cost is imposed on them. Their spouse says, look, you got to stop doing this or I'm out of here. Or their boss says, look, you show up high at work one more time, you're fired. Those kinds of things are, are usually why people seek help, not because they independently thought, you know, I'm not self-actualizing. I think I'm going to try to stop using fentanyl. What's the ideal criminal interdiction? A ticket that they actually enforce with a $100 fine or something more than that? 
Yeah, there's multiple things we can do. I mean, you know, uh, drug courts work. Drug courts are, you know, where and, and this is for people who, you know, repeatedly offend. You know, it's they're they're not there for possession. Typically, they're there because they've stolen a hundred catalytic converters that they keep breaking into houses. But when they're monitored every week, there's also another model that was promoted by someone. I don't know if you know Mark Kleiman, uh, the late Mark Kleiman, who's a great criminologist, but pointed out that you could do a great deal just in probation and parole by uh, doing regular drug tests and saying to people. You know, there's a, there are sanctions and rewards for whether or not you use or not. And, you know, if somebody tests negative, you say, okay, you can, you don't have to serve the custodial part of your sentence. But then if they do test, test positive, you say, okay, you're going to have to have a single night in jail, which is not much for a population that's been often in prison, but it's a swift, certain, you know, reliable penalty, which is that's what motivates most people. And even more so, that's what motivates people who are addicted. They, they don't. During addiction, it's very hard to think about the distant future. You know, may- maybe in ten years, something bad will happen. Is not as uh, motivating as you're going to feel really good immediately if you use this drug. What has your scholarship shown about the relationship between drug addiction, especially the rise in fentanyl and homelessness? So, you know, there, there's a a lot. Uh, of people, I think, who have a simple answer here, that homelessness produces addiction or addiction produces homelessness. And, you know, it's, you can find individual cases that meet each of those theories. So I have, I have known people personally who had housing, developed an addiction and uh, lost their housing, either because their family couldn't take it anymore, or they, they sold all their stuff, or they, or, or they became paranoid and didn't want to live there anymore. And then there are also people who generate an addiction on the street, because there is a pretty robust drug culture in a lot of our cities. Maybe they originally become homeless because they lost their job, or maybe they had a medical crisis, they had bills they couldn't pay, and then they get swept into dealing and using. So, so it's all mixed together. At this particular point, something very important to remember is the, the homeless population has a much higher proportion of addiction and mental illness than they did even 15 or 20 years ago. And that's because the job market is hot. So when unemployment is high, you see many more people who are homeless who are, to use a depressionary expression, down in their luck. If they just had a job, they would be out of there. But when, when we have the hottest you know, job market in 40 years, the people who are left homeless are the ones who can't uh, even engage in a job market where at least, you know, where, where you make $20 an hour working at McDonald's with no experience. They can't, can't do that. That's how serious their troubles are. So at this moment, the homeless population is, is pretty troubled. I mean, the, the normative person has pretty serious individual level problems that are not as simple as housing uh, alone. Right. No matter how they got there, which you just talked about. But it would seem those statistics would indicate that the reason why a higher percentage of the homeless population have addiction problems is because we've taken away the percent of the homeless population that just needed a job. But that would also indicate that the homeless population should be shrinking uh, under that set of circumstances. And that's not what's going on. Well, it is shrinking everywhere but California. Uh, you know, uh, and we, we have a unique set of challenges out here. But if you look at other cities, they've done spectacular jobs. Dallas, Houston, um, you know, have. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because those are warm. That's when they go, oh, California's warm. Well, those places are pretty warm, too. Yeah, I think from everything I've read, the there's a really, really weak correlation, if one at all, between weather and homelessness. There's much stronger correlation is between housing prices and homelessness. But you're also saying that addiction plays a very key role. Yes, that's right. They're both things are true. I mean, you know, San Francisco, we have a very serious housing a homelessness problem, which I think everybody knows. We also have spectacularly expensive housing, and that absolutely does not help in solving it. 
Keith Humphreys is the Esther Ting Memorial Professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's coming out with a new book called Addiction, a very short introduction. Thank you so much, Professor Humphreys. Thank you, Mike. Spiel? The real deal. A train explosion outside an Ohio town spews a plume of unknown composition and danger into the air. It's called a feathery plume, a billowy cloud, but eventually they settle on a new name. Now, if you know that I'm going to say the new name is... They're calling it the Airborne Toxic Event. You will recognize that I've been describing the plot to the Don DeLillo novel and recent art house film White Noise. But maybe you recognize the events I was describing to be actual news out of Palestine, Ohio, after a Norfolk Southern train carrying 20 cars of hazardous material jumped the rails and burst into a ball of smoke and fire. That train, the smoke, Ohio, evacuation, it's all reflected both in White Noise and in real life. In fact, there have been a number of stories now about how extras in the movie White Noise who were residents of East Palestine are now living the events they inhabited as background players. If White Noise had done better at the box office or lodged itself further into the national consciousness via an Oscar nomination, the comparison of film and event would be so overwrought at this point I could be accused of cliche. But the Ohio derailment has been big news, certainly in Ohio, but maybe not national news to the extent that, say, Fox News would argue it should be. If you first thought of White Noise when you heard the description that I laid on you, you were more or less exemplifying a point they have been making over and over. Here's Brian Kilmeade of Fox & Friends talking about how no one was talking about the incident so as to protect the man at the top. And some people say they basically nuked the entire town, and instead of flooding the town with experts, they seem to be sitting back and hoping this will go away. Among the people upset by this, not only J.D. Vance, but Congresswoman Elon Omar, she came out and said, East Palestine Road derailment will have a significant negative impact on the health and well-being of the residents for decades. And this is almost zero national attention, zero national media attention. The premise on Fox, and much of the right, is that what's blacking out East Palestine isn't the toxins in the air, it's the media in the bag, because Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg is clearly to blame. And he has not publicly commented on the derailment or the controlled explosion in the 10 days since the train jumped the rails, or hadn't before Fox unleashed its torrent of criticism upon him. Further proof of his disengagement, and this is really damning stuff to the Fox viewer, was that in his first comments yesterday, 10 days after the derailment, seven days after the controlled explosion, Buttigieg spoke to the National Association of Counties about things that counties would be interested in, like safe streets, electric vehicles, and post-crash care for EMS drivers after an auto accident. But he also said this. We have heard way too many stories from generations past of infrastructure where you got a a neighborhood, often a neighborhood of color, that finally sees the project come to them, but everyone in the hard hats on that project looking like, uh, uh, you know, doing doing the good paying jobs don't look like they came from anywhere near the neighborhood. 
Yeah, he did say that. It accounted for 17 seconds of a 23-minute Q&A session. It wasn't quite an aside because Buttigieg is clearly supportive of that part of the overall jobs policy. Tucker Carlson did a 14-minute segment on that 17-second segment. Tucker illustrated his thoughts with a graphic of Pete Buttigieg on a swing and the lower third or Chiron read, Mayor Pete, too many white guys in hard hats. By the way, the whole here's a here's a real aside, the whole Mayor Pete trope calling him Mayor Pete, it's interesting and pretty clever in that it is anti-Buttigieg propaganda, but they could always say, that's what you labeled yourself. But of course, at this point, as an administration official, it diminishes him, but it's political jujitsu. Now, to really assess the accuracy that's at the heart of the Fox critique, and the critique by some on the left, I've read some of this in the article Jacobin, and you heard Elon Omar quoted, you have to break down the various components of the criticism. Is it true Buttigieg ignored it? Is it true Buttigieg shouldn't have ignored it? Is it true that if Buttigieg hadn't ignored it, things would be different now? Is it true that the it that Buttigieg is said to ignore is a blunder, the controlled explosion compared quite irresponsibly, let's just say this, to a nuclear detonation? Is all that true? The answer is Buttigieg doesn't seem to have said anything, but it's not clear that he didn't do anything as head of the Secretary of Transportation. It's also clear that he needed to do anything differently that was done. It's also unclear that he's the one who could have done anything differently. The EPA was the relevant agency responsible for the explosion. They consulted with local officials. It's also not clear that anyone will actually have long-term health effects of the derailment. Remember, Zero died. So this is all just classic right-wing manipulation, right? Actually, That's not how I see it. This is what, in a sense, we want the media to do. Sure, Fox does it by bludgeon and with a framing that appeals to their audience, primed to believe that social justice is driving 100% of Democrats' work. But they are, in fact, holding the relevant public official accountable. And the left does the exact same thing. Remember when Buttigieg, then actually Mayor Pete, was running for president? One of the major knocks against him, really the only specific policy critique, because most of his criticism was in the form of his biography or his experience or his comportment or his time at McKinsey. But the one thing that he did wrong that the critics pointed to was that as mayor of South Bend, the police force there shot and killed suspects on three different occasions. Did this really happen? Was this excessive? Did Buttigieg not handle it sufficiently or in the right way? And those questions all came from the left. When few on the right were really worried about or aware of Buttigieg's viable political threat, those on the left were, and they were putting forward the argument against his candidacy that he was the wrong choice to address the pressing issue of police violence. There were articles in New York Magazine where the headline was, just how bad did Mayor Pete handle the police shooting? Just how bad? It wasn't clear the reaction was bad at all. Certainly clear the event was bad. Single quotes were taken out of context, or at least meant to stand for the whole of his remarks, just like I played Fox doing. When one protester accused him of leveraging the moment for his national ambitions, he said, ma'am, I'm not asking for your vote. Buttigieg critics painted the comment as insensitive and dismissive of black people's concerns. For the record, South Bend has a third of 1% of the national population during Buttigieg's tenure as mayor. Three shootings occurred in the city. That's about one third of 1% of the U.S. population. So as a percent of overall population, killings there, police Officer-involved shootings were a little higher, very little bit higher than the national average, but norm for background crime rate or the murder rate in South Bend, it was a bit lower. The point isn't that any of these critiques were fair on the train, on the shootings. 
they just weren't perfectly fair. And also the actual critique of that particular thing, the shooting the train, yeah, it did stand in its own right, but it was also used as a means to thwart Buttigieg's political standing. But that's all fine. This is how accountability works, quite imperfectly. And it also works without a partisan or ideological valence. The right is so unfair. I mean, whether you think it is or isn't, the techniques are duplicated everywhere. Yesterday, Buttigieg did issue a tweet It essentially said, yes, we're paying attention. Very bad thing that happened in Palestine. Today, Fox ran a headline acknowledging the acknowledgement. It read, Buttigieg weighs in on the Michigan State shooting 12 hours later, ignored Ohio train derailment for 10 days. And if he ignored Michigan State, I suppose he'd be criticized for that, which is not perfectly fair. But it's kind of perfectly unfair. And as a by now seasoned political player, Buttigieg knows he's going to get dinged by people who want to ding him. And he's probably concluded that if the critique doesn't have much merit, it's not going to harm him too much. He also knows when you're a public official, the things that happen on your watch are your responsibility, even if they're not under your control. Being criticized isn't a disaster, and it's not a tragedy. The actual disasters and tragedies are smoldering next to train tracks in Ohio and busy planning funerals in Lansing. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's producer, and Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. They were both waiting for me as I talked about Pete Buttigieg, because we have to do a very important meeting about a very important announcement that's coming in a day or two. Michelle Pasca, also involved in that announcement, but wasn't delayed by my spieling. CEO of Peachfish Productions, the gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, Peru, do Peru. Thanks for listening. <laughs>